Hi everybody, welcome to another EduThink podcast. I'm Gershom Aitchison, Headmaster of Education Incorporated, and I have two very special guests with me today in the studio. I have Joe Judnick-Wilson and Nicola Killops, moms who are on a neurodiverse journey with their kids and are both in different places at the moment. Hi Gershom, thanks for having me. Hi Gersh, thanks for having me. What I'd like to talk a little bit about today is inclusive classrooms, inclusive school cultures, and just chat a little bit about the two neurodiverse journeys that you guys are on and where you are on with that journey. And I think it might be a good starting point, Nicola, to talk about you because you're further along on the journey and just maybe give us a little history of where you're at. Okay. Um, my son, James, he's 19, be 20 in April. So it's been a long journey, but... It's actually been the most incredible journey in terms of what we've got out of it in the end, what we've grown and what we've learned, but it's been very difficult. Um, I'm also a teacher, so I kind of have the view from both sides, um, being in the classroom, dealing with it, being a mom, dealing with it, and trying to deal with other teachers and other schools dealing with my child. Where the journey took me was quite interesting because my son's what they refer to as 2E or twice exceptional. And this means he's on both sides of exceptional. He is intellectually gifted, but he's got dyslexia, which is a learning disability. So he's kind of out of whack in that sense, which comes with even more issues because You've got the brain of the gifted child and the want to learn and the need to learn, plus he's on the autism spectrum, and that's high-functioning autism. So he's got this deep, deep need for knowledge and all of this stuff, and then he was held back by dyslexia. And then also in the school system, the schools have no idea to ha how to handle either of those in the, on their own. Put it together, and you've got another disaster on your plate. So I noticed very early that James was different. I didn't know exactly why at the time. I was a young mom. He's my only child. I didn't have any reference. This was in early 2000s. He was born in 2004. So we didn't have the resources available, you know, um, social media. I mean, Google was around, but, you know, nothing like there is today. And some of the things I realized are the gifted side now, some of the things I realize are the autism and some of them are a bit of both. But for example, from the minute he was born, he didn't sleep. People said, when you've got a newborn, sleep and your baby sleeps. They sleep 20 hours a day. You'll have plenty of time to just recuperate well. No, James would catnap. So from newborn, he'd sleep 20 minutes, wake up for an hour or so, sleep another 20 minutes, wake up for 10. And this is over 24 hours. So by the time he was six months old, I had such severe postnatal depression, obviously from the sheer exhaustion. I mean, having a baby is exhausting at the best of times. And he was a very, he was an active, happy baby, but that was the thing. He just didn't sleep. And as he got a little bit older, I noticed his speech delay. He had a complete language, but it was his own language. I could kind of understand as his mom, we kind of made this language, but he wasn't developing English. He wasn't speaking English the way a child at that age should be learning language. His school did mention, he was in a nursery school, and they also, they mentioned they were a bit concerned, but he'd met all these other milestones. And a lot of um, parents would say, oh, it's because he doesn't have a sibling, you know, he'll be a bit behind, kids who've got siblings learn quicker. 
But a friend of mine had a baby a year after him, exactly a year. And when this child was starting to speak quite well, and mine wasn't, I was like, no, something's really wrong here. He was four. And he was speaking, but not where a four-year-old should. So he started speech therapy, and the therapist was an amazing woman who recognized that James is very, very special. You know, he was extremely bright. Just something else. You know, I can't explain it. He was a very special child, but he had all of these challenges. The nursery school, the way they would put it on his reports would be things like he plays alongside his peers because he would integrate with the group but do his own thing on the side. He wasn't, he didn't have the social know-how to integrate. He always felt like he wasn't on the outside. Then he had to go um, to grade naught and we moved him to, it was a, a very good government school. It was, you know, we can say Ravonia Primary School was incredible. Um, but they weren't equipped. They had no idea what they were dealing with. And I don't blame them because I am a teacher and I know that I wouldn't have been equipped in that situation either. His teacher, her name was Teacher Sue. She was a, she was so, so good. James had massive anxiety issues. He would have meltdowns. If anything, if there was overstimulation, if there was anything like that, he'd fall apart, lying on the floor, screaming. It was quite a show. And she'd do little things like she had a balloon in her back room and James knew he could go into the back room and blow his angry feeling into the balloon and bring it out and let it go. And just those little things, even though he wasn't coping, the fact that somebody had his back meant the world to me. But eventually when they said, listen, you know, it's not the environment for him and I could I could see that. And that's what started us on the journey of trying to find the environment for him. Um, he then went to remedial school at the sort of the middle of grade naught, started okay. But again, um, the dyslexia was causing issues. And because he's highly intelligent and has a very good memory, they didn't realize he wasn't learning to read because, you know, you've got the books and the kids all read and the teacher reads and he memorized it. So he knew what page looked like what, and he would say what was on the page, and everybody thought it was fine, but he actually wasn't learning to read. And when this became apparent, the teacher was, you know, the little things that, like James, for example, would have um, these sort of, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Tactics to kind of, I know the word, my brain's just not going there now. Um, you, have, you had a toolkit, like not a toolkit. It was kind of like an avoidance tactic. Um, so when you become overwhelmed, he would become a T Rex. But for an entire week, he was a T Rex. But it's because T Rexes have short arms, so they can't write. And that was his justification to explain to the teacher why he can't do the work because he he's a T Rex, and in his head, he really was a T Rex. Um, or he'd want to do spelling lessons in the tree because he was a spelling bee. You know, and then, but in, so again, it didn't go very well. Um, and I had to move him. But then where, you know, we were in a remedial school that are, these are, I've realized now looking back, many neurodiverse children actually don't need a remedial school because it's not about remediating high functioning autism. Sure. Yes, he had dyslexia, but that also doesn't require necessarily a remedial school because your learning functions are fine. Um, it's more about intervention. But where do you go when you're already in a remedial school? So 
they recommended, and this was when the journey started, um, this was where I had picked up on high-functioning autism through my own research, and this was, when I mentioned it to them, they said as a school, they can't diagnose, but because I've raised it, they agree with me and they think it's something I should um, look into. And that was when he got his formal diagnosis. He'd been diagnosed with ADHD at four. And at seven, he got his formal diagnosis. And I searched high and low. Um, I looked at some facilities that could offer me the world, but for 25,000 rand a month. And remember, this is 2011. So there was a lot of money. Um, so those obviously weren't viable. I was a teacher. You know, his father works for the airline and it's a parastatal, so we weren't exactly rolling, but we were prepared to make whatever sacrifices we need to. And I came across a school in Parktown, which has actually been there since the 70s, called the Key School. And I'm so grateful to them. You know, we didn't cross any of the academic hurdles there, but he had the most incredible, incredible young male teacher. And I've learned, like with James, the best, that's where he's always thrived, is having a positive male teacher in his corner. And this guy healed James emotionally for a huge extent, really, really nurtured him. But they were funded by the lotto and they lost their funding and eventually had to close down. I think they did manage to get the model up and running, but a totally different model thereafter. So now what? And I'd looked into all sorts of schools, small schools, cottage schools, remedial schools. They were all just, I'm sorry, we can't work with a kid who knows how to cite the entire Russian history, but can't write cat and can't write dog and doesn't know his bonds. Um, and he went again to a place that took him in, which was really lovely, called Fairy Glen Therapy Center in North Riding. And teacher Tracy, she wanted to take on uh, like an impact curriculum and do her best to kind of catch him up. But he'd, he he struggled significantly. And at this stage, I moved to a school called Radford House, where I started teaching. And Radford House is a school for gifted children. And that's where my life actually changed in terms of being a mom and also in terms of being a teacher, because it gave me the insight that... I would never have had it in any other situation. I realized I was surrounded by neurodiverse kids, but they were all highly, highly gifted. And I realized that very often, not always, but it goes hand in hand. And what these kids, now that they were in a, an environment where these people got it and they were given that space to learn the way they needed to learn, they were thriving. But unfortunately for us, I felt James had missed out on so much and those foundations were still, it wouldn't have been fair to put him in the environment at that point. Um, and I enrolled him in something called the Davis program, which cost me something ridiculous, like 100,000 rand. But it, it changed his life. It, um, it, was a, it was a dyslexia program. It's a huge international program. But they also have uh, an autism program, too, that's connected to it. And because of James needing it so intensely, that's why it was so, ex so expensive. It's normally like a three, four-day course. He needed 10 days. And also bear in mind, autism cannot, it's not a curable thing, but when you teach tools on how to manage yourself and how to deal with a lot of the symptoms, 
um, that's where the difference happens. And James learned incredible tools. His meltdowns cut by 80% um, just because he, he learned um, like management tools and how to regulate himself a little bit better. He, um, it just, it unlocked so much that he could function so much better because he could manage himself better and he felt more in control because a lot of it is about feeling overwhelmed and out of control. And that was when I could finally get him into a more um, school environment. And he started at Orion College, which is also a remedial school, but they were a wonderful bridge to where he is now because they took him in. I mean, by the time James was in in grade six, he had never actually done school. He'd never been in an English class or been in a maths class. He'd just been in these little environments where they give him clever cat and any apple and um and they saw his potential and they took him up through to their caps curriculum at least where he could kind of find his feet and we were i was especially lucky where they noticed they recognized in grade nine you know they because of the nature of their school they didn't offer um things like physics and core maths, but they knew that it was something that James needed and could thrive in. So we then moved him to school that offered that. And unfortunately, the environment wasn't suitable. Um, he had the academic ability at last, but it was a very negative environment for him and did a lot of damage to his emotions. Uh, and he's got huge rejection issues from obviously bouncing from school to school and socially is at a lot of rejection. I couldn't take him to birthday parties. We'd, when we had family events, there'd be issues. Um, so by that stage, that just kind of broke him. So we, we hit a little bit of a glitch, but we built up from there and he's now in a tutor center that is helping him and they understand him and they're fantastic. And yeah, he's a he's a strapping, handsome, grown man who, for the most part, you would just think is incredibly bright and has a lot to say, sometimes inappropriately. He does put his foot in his mouth very often, and I've had some very interesting situations that I've had to deal with um, explaining him to people. But I'm very proud of my son because I think he's overcome massive, massive hurdles my biggest concern is that we still don't have that formal school background. And unfortunately, the world runs on paperwork. But I do believe that once he can find his own path and do something that he's passionate about and that he loves, he's going to thrive. He's going to fly because, you know, everybody knows Richard Branson totally bailed out of school, failed miserably. Look at him now. Um, Einstein, apparently, I know a lot of these things aren't necessarily true, but a lot of people say he was miserable at school, got kicked out. Look at him. Um, I know James is one of those people who has that kind of gift for the world. He's just got to be in the environment where he can finally unwrap it and put it out there. So I know it's a very long story, but it's 20 years and I've left out so many anecdotes that I could give you, but that would be like, a six-year conversation. Yeah, 20 years in, in two minutes is significant. There's a lot of strong words that we're going to dive into there a little bit mm -hmm. about. You've used the word deal a lot, and I'd like to 
put that opinion that in on the shelf and talk a little bit about that. But I'd like to hear a little bit about what Joe, what Joe's experience in her journey is I'd so far. Love to hear. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing. I think you know. Being a mother of a child with a special need, um, atypical, it's a lonely journey. And so you just feel a little bit more, um, like you're, you know, you have some sanity in your life when you, when you hear other people talk about it. So thank you. Thank you for being, um, honest and, and, and raw. And, um, and it's something that I haven't done enough in, in my motherhood journey. Uh, we were, you know, talking about it earlier and just saying, you know, as a mother, you, you always start to think about your, your child's journey going forward and the impact and the, um, negative connotations of saying like, Oh, my son is on the spectrum. And what does that mean? What does it mean for jobs going forward? What does it mean for university applications? And so I've often, you know, just kind of stayed in the background with it and, and hadn't really spoken about it, but, um, I'm realizing just the value in it. And as my son now speaks about it so openly, and it's given me the opportunity to say, okay, well, this is our journey. Our journey started a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. We, um, actually struggled to fall pregnant five years and, uh, and then we got our little boy and he was born and just a, a little blessing, to be honest. Uh, slept like an angel. It was, he was, he was like the model child for two and a half years. No problems. Um, you know, obviously there were some health issues in between, but as far as sleeping, wonderful. I was the mom who could take him out. I could go shopping. He just loved sitting in his pram, never gave an ounce of trouble. In retrospect, looking back, all the signs were there that this, this child had sensory issues and he loved his small spaces. He loved being in that pram. He was safe and secure from a world that we would learn later on was very scary for him. So he loved being that pram. It was the idea. I was being the ideal mom for him. And, um, and he loved being in his room and home and, and those type of places. For us, it started around about two and a half. We just noticed this absolute change in him. If I'm honest, there were signs beforehand. He wasn't great with eye contact. He used to sit in his crib and and rock and, you know, a few things like that when we look back. But there was an absolute moment where he changed. It was talk and cheese. And I actually said to my husband, I was like, I don't know what's going on with this child. But from a child who was so meek and mild, all of a sudden these meltdowns and these these things we couldn't control. It was, I was like, is he possessed? <laughs> you know, you, you see these movies. And I was like, my goodness, is this reality? And it, it, he was so foreign, we, we didn't understand. And that's when we started um, taking him to different therapies. And we really started to learn about this world where, you know, children have sensory issues. And that was really um, Jesse for us. He was so overwhelmed with the world around him. And I don't think you can conceptualize that as somebody who doesn't have sensory issues. And, um, you know, when he started to learn to speak, he would say things to us about being at school and he would say, mom, even the walls are loud. And this is, it was something so profound for me. And it's also something I've learned as a mother on this journey is that often we are hearing our children, but we're not really listening to what that means. And if you as a person sit there and you think you're in a room where you think even the, the walls are loud, how is he learning? How is he okay? And this child used to come home and I used to say, like, I feel like I have a, ch- a four-year-old who's depressed because he just used to get in the car and dead quiet, not speak. And, and I realized it's because he just spent five hours in a place that was so overwhelming that he had nothing left to give. For us, um, you know, we started with therapy and it was one of the best things we did, the early intervention, the OTs, the play therapies, et cetera. We didn't have a diagnosis at that time. And I could just see that beyond the 
the inability to you know be um for change or loud rooms or anything like that and it wasn't just noise it was visually when things got busy as well was the fact that he started to misinterpret social cues and he would say things um you know a car would go past us and people were you know laughing or smiling at each other and he would say mom why are they laughing at me why i don't understand and you know we just he wasn't getting that or if he was at school and the coaches said something like come on guys you're being chickens and he would really be upset about it to the point that he would distract him for the rest of the day he's like i'm not a chicken i don't understand this like but i'm not a chicken can they not see i don't look like a chicken and these type of things would just cons- completely consume him to the point where i knew that there was nothing else that he thought about for the rest of the day at school his diagnosis came a little bit later i think it was maybe four years old at the time. And, um, you know, I, I had suspected it. I had done enough research for us. Thankfully, you know, Dr. Google was around. Not that I'm advocating for Dr. Google, but I could, you could research, you could look things up. Facebook was also a thing. So we had joined a number of Facebook uh, support groups and, you know, just talking there. But I didn't have friends I could necessarily talk to. I didn't have mothers in the same space as me. So we went through and um, met some wonderful, wonderful people from Autism South Africa, and we got a slot to have him tested. And um, it was actually at, um, at Joburg Gen, I think, at the time that we, we had him tested, and th- there were different therapists there. And um, what's it called? The ADOS. That's right. So we did the ADOS. And so we got his diagnosis, went back to his doctor, and I remember so... It, it like like it was yesterday, you know, her sitting there and her words were, you know, you need to assume nothing and lower your expectations. And those are very heavy words for parents to hear at the time. And, you know, she actually didn't even mention at the time she, you know, she didn't go like, oh, your son is on the autism spectrum. I think she sort of had assumed that we understood. And, and eventually my husband was like, what are you actually saying? Like, what is, what, what, what are we saying? What's wrong? And she said, no, well, your son, he's, he's autistic. I mean, it's, it's clear as, clear as day was, was her words. But going back to, you know, lower the, your expectations, it was some of the hardest words I've heard as a parent and some of the, I would say, possibly some of the best words at the same time because we do as parents we you know we hope a lot for our children there's a lot of pressure we put on them and at that stage I took it all away I took everything away from him as far as the pressure that I would have of him you know being on a first team rugby or or doing anything like that um it just I just put it aside and this little kid actually got to grow up in an environment where he didn't have parents who were pushing him to do those type of things. And he found it himself. So grade one, he comes to me and he says, mom, I'm going to do that Statford. And my face, my heart, everything just dropped because I thought to myself, oh my goodness, child, you've never been on a stage. I mean, he would sit in the, we would sit in the audience during, you know, concerts in primary school and he'd be the kid with the headphones on in the back with us watching the other kids. So he'd never been in a concert. Now he's going to get up on stage and do that Statford. And he did it. And I think that's one of the great things you can actually learn about this journey is that when they when you take away pressure and you let kids find it in their own time, they'll surprise you immensely. But school was difficult. The road was very, very difficult for us. You know, we had a lot of therapists. We were very, very blessed to be in the position to be able to do that. Thank you, medical aids. 
Um, we also, I did a lot of research into medical aid, and I think this is another thing that parents don't realize, is that there is a lot of benefits to your medical aid. You just don't know it, and there's no one out there telling you about it and how to use your benefits to the maximum. So we were very fortunate to figure that out and um, and be able to give him that therapy. And we'd be a very, very different situation, and, and we'd be a, a different conversation, to be honest, if we hadn't. But school was hard and it was always a conflict of do we keep him mainstream? Do we take him to a remedial school? What do we do? And, you know, from our therapist's point of view, they really pushed and said, you know, try keep him mainstream, try keep him mainstream. There's a lot of um, stigma at the time that if we didn't, we'd never get him back into mainstream. And of course, even though we should be lowering our expectations as parents, you have, you know, you want the best for your, your, your children. You want them to go to good schools. So we kept him mainstream and, and then comes all the issues of inclusivity. And honestly, I think we just swam upstream the entire time. We had incredible teachers and it wasn't for a lack of people trying. The effort, the, um, the energy, everything was there, but you're in a system that you're just fighting it the whole time. And as much as you're trying to implement, it doesn't fit. It's exactly that. You're in a system where it just doesn't fit. You can't, um, like you said, you know, put pegs into into round holes, and it, it just doesn't it doesn't work as much as you're trying. And you know, we really thought we could be those parents that would help our school, um, you know, find that niche, and we did. Um, but it wasn't enough. And uh, uh, COVID came along, and it forced our hand. Um, in fact, it literally broke that cycle for us. I think we we're in the position where it was better the devil you know than the devil you know, you know, you don't. We stay in the same school. We push forward. We keep on trying, but, um, you know, three steps forward, four steps back the entire time. And for, you know, for Jace, I just used to remember, I used to take him to school and we used to get out the car and, you know, he'd be happy and jovial until we got to school. And then I would start to walk him across the little um, zebra crossing and I could feel this hand tighten and tighten and tighten. And I knew, I knew deep down that this environment wasn't right. And I, and I knew, um, you know, I don't want to say I knew the damage it was causing, but I felt it. You had that gut feeling that this just wasn't working, but yet you want to, you want to keep on trying. You want to endeavor. And I don't, don't know if it's mom guilt that comes in the way of that, but that's what we were doing. And, um, you know, it came to a particular year where one of the teachers, um, I had said, you know, she has so much experience. Um, there isn't a child she's never, that she hasn't seen. And I just, it goes against the grain of everything. Every child is unique. And if you've got that, you know, box type of mentality, I don't think you can ever help um, all, all your children in, in the class. And um, for us, that was the, the beginning of the end. That's where JC started to say he was stupid. You know, my son would come home from school and say, I'm stupid. No mother ever wants to hear those words out of their, out of their child's mouth. And I can't, um, I can't do this. I'll never be able to do math. I'm the stupidest in the class. And it was hard. And I think at that point, we were really now just, just, yeah, I, I don't know. You feel desperate. You feel lonely because you don't know where to go to. You've got your therapists, um, you know, but you can't really talk to them, you know, parents whose kids are doing amazing in the same teacher's class because, you know, it, it's just, it, there's a level of misunderstanding. There's a level of, I don't know how to explain what my son has. And then you get comments back going, it doesn't look like your son has autism. 
And, and you sit there going like, well, what should I do to him to make him look autistic? This is my son. And, and I'm telling you, uh, we, we dealt with this. You know, we've, we've had the, the, the parts where he's been so out of whack and he cannot, um, you know, collect himself. And you literally sit there and you're like, oh my gosh, you, you know, as a mother, your, your mind is blown. You actually just sit there and you're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And, you know, you try to reach out to different people. And I mean, I think that's for us the worst it ever, you know, the worst it ever got. Um, so COVID came around and it forced our hand. You know, we were obviously at home. We were in lockdown. Lockdown did not work for us. We could not do learning where my son was at home and a majority of the class was back at school. And the reason for that, and, and unfortunately, you know, when you're in neurodiversity alongside that often comes immune issues, comes a lot of health issues. And um, Jess had had myositis three years prior to that. And um, his rheumatologist had just said to us, you know, we don't know if his immune system is going to overreact or it's going to underreact. And so we really need this child to stay home. We just don't know. It's unknown for us. So we stayed home and, um, you know, I just I had to have a conversation with the school and said, I need to take him out. And we did. And I gave him the next three months off. We just were kids again. I, I felt like we need to unlearn what um, the, the anxiety that he had around school and um, the environment. And uh, we did that. And then we homeschooled for one year. Uh, we had to go right back to basics. And that's probably one of the best things we did. You know, we went right back to where he said the first time he said, I'm stupid. We went right back there for English and maths. Let's let's tackle that. And then um, probably one of the pivotal moments in our life happened. Um, Jay said he wanted to go back to school. It had now been, you know, two years uh, past COVID. And I said to him, I said, well, Jess, tell me, you know, where would you want to go? Um, and that's another thing, you know, is that, um, with maturity and so much intervention, Jesse was able to really articulate his needs. Um, he's also incredibly bright. And this is, you know, such a juxtaposition to a child who's saying I'm stupid is I had a child who also had, he just, he, um, loves history. He has such a passion for it. He was watching documentaries in the history channel from the age of six. So he has such a, um, a passion and, and such an inquisitive mind and um, a photographic mind. So, uh, you know, when he's a child saying I'm stupid, but then he can recite, uh, you know, programs and, and um, you know, battles, great battles of our, of our, our in history. I was like, something just doesn't fit with me. So he had said to me, mom, I want to go to a school, but I want it to be small classrooms, um, you know, maybe 10 in a class were actually his words to me. And, um, you know, this, this is what I'd like to do. And, and so that's when we started to investigate. I was nervous to, you know, find a school that was just a home uh, school type of environment because, you know, we had been so programmed into keep him mainstream, keep him mainstream, keep him mainstream. Um, and that's obviously when we came across Education Incorporated. It was December. Everybody was closed and, um, we managed to, to meet in, in January. And, and I think that was really a turning point for us was all those years of struggling to find the environment where, um, you know, he would fit in. We walked into a space where, um, he felt comfortable right from, right from the get go. And I think the difference was, was that, you know, he wasn't having to conform straight away. Um, it wasn't, um, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's so, it's so hard to explain, but you just know as a mother, when your child is happy, there is something 
that your heart just feels different. And I don't know how to explain it. You sleep better. Um, I smile more. You, you know, your, your, your kid's happy. Everything changes. And so, yeah, his journey with eduing started then. Um, we, Jesse actually chose to stay down a year. Um, he probably needn't have, but, and this is something else, you know, I've just learned as a mother, he's an end of the year baby. And it was always going to be a struggle for him. He was always going to be young for his, his age group and the opportunity to stay back. And it was something we were trying to do for a number of years. But again, when you're, when you're in a mainstream system where everything is, you know, cookie cutter shapes and it's in boxes, you really, uh, you, you know, it would be a miracle to try get them to agree to, to keep this child down a year. And I just felt that from a maturity point of view, from everything that he lost, that this would be something beneficial. And at the end of the day, that was something proposed to Jess, and that was something he chose. He said, actually, no, I, I'm tired of struggling. I'd like to, you know, have the upper hand. And that was one of the best decisions we've made for him. He's he's completely excelled from a child who said, I'm stupid, to a child that won the Ducks Award at the end of his first year at Education Incorporated. That is, I can't, I can't ask for more for him. Um, and it wasn't just his grades. I could see his confidence changed. You know, when he felt like he was being heard, when he felt like he could have the conversations with the teachers that he wasn't able to have before, um, that's that's significant. Um, as humans, you know, we want to feel heard. We want to feel um, uh, accepted at the end of the day and appreciate it. And I think that's where that's where he feels now. And so, yeah, we have a teenager. He just turned 13 and, and that's where I'm at right now. And uh uh, everything's new um we learning as we go and uh yeah fascinating journeys and thanks for sharing that different you're in different spaces a 13 year old and a 19 year old but there are a couple of key points that have come out from this and that is the word overwhelm and i think we talk about the kids being overwhelmed a lot at school and in then different environments for different reasons reasons being tactile defensive century defensive being overwhelmed, not being able to manage. I know that in my experience, change is a big problem. Gray areas are a big problem. And if you prep appropriately and have the meaningful conversations in advance, it helps with that sense of overwhelm. And I think a lot of kids in this situation um, on the spectrum feel a lot of anxiety. And anxiety, in my mind, is the antithesis of control. And con lack of control overwhelm, anxiety, all kind of fits in that same space when talking to them and having the conversations with them. I think what is very useful that you've said, Joe, is that it's having a voice, understanding yourself and being able to express your needs because that'll give you a sense of control in environments. And I think from what I've seen with, with Jesse is it's about the owning who you are and he's thriving in that space. One of the other things that I said I was going to come back to, Nicola, was the word deal with. You use a lot of it. You know, deal with feels like the opposite of thriving. It feels like we're in crisis mode the whole time. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the overwhelm that the parents feel because being on the spectrum is not just, it's a spectrum for a reason. And it's not just a two-dimensional spectrum. Imagine a spot within a huge globe and you you have different people in those spots. It's not just a linear, um, I'm a one out of 10 or a, an eight out of 10. It's within this globe because there's so many unique characteristics. So the two of you have had a similar journey, 
but it has been uniquely your own journeys and your children will have that unique journey themselves. If you were giving advice to parents, what you mentioned the early, you know, intervention, the, the early conversations and the support, you started your journey a little bit later. You've mentioned people like Autism South Africa, for example, we would like parents to be able to, it's going to be a difficult journey, but we would like them to be in a position where they feel that it's not a journey of dealing with the whole time. It feels like normal parental skills, but adapted to what you need. How do we get to that space? If you guys could wave a magic wand, what would be in place for parental support? But as parents on this journey, and you are certainly not the only ones, what's your magic wand in that space? Nicola, maybe start with you. The first one I could give as the, the parent with the experience, but then as the teacher who is now supporting parents in a similar situation, one of one of the things that is very important is to embrace and acknowledge because because of stigma and one of the big things people say is, oh, I don't want to give my child a label. But you need to understand you're not giving your child a label. You are empowering yourself because you understand what you're dealing with. They yes, use the word again, deal. Mm. And you can, you can figure out how to sort of navigate it with your child better because you understand. And one of the parents that I dealt with, she and I have still got a very close relationship because I walked the journey with her um, when her son was in my grade four class. And she said that was the best advice I gave because especially f- for her husband, because for the most part, and I know it's um, it's just the nature of moms. We kind of in the thick of it, and then we try and often. Um, my experience as a teacher is often the dads are a little bit more peripheral in it until they start to understand what it is, and once they do, they're all, they're on board. And she said, all the things that used to frustrate the father so much and make him so unhappy and cause so many arguments and so many fights, as soon as he realised why. And he understood the spectrum better. Their whole family life changed because there was a reason. And one of my frustrations, for example, my son is is the opposite of tactile defensive. He is sensory seeking, which is difficult when you live with somebody who is defensive, in, uh, especially with auditory defensive. But with James, it needs to be very loud. The louder, the better. He needs to touch everything. I think he's thought his name was don't touch for the first five years of his life (laughs) um he would wedge himself under a mattress between the mattress and the bed because he needed the pressure um those were all those kinds of things that we had to learn and I could suddenly understand why and I was he had a teacher who didn't get how stimulation can affect kids like this. I mean, there are a lot of people who have sensory aversions. At times, it by a thousand when you're dealing with the spectrum. And James's trick would be to close his eyes during class if he was listening and trying to take in what the teacher was saying. Um, but he would just get kicked out because he's apparently, you know, sleeping in class. Um, but the thing is, for him to deal with visual input and auditory at the same time causes his brain to just, it's like a chameleon on a smarty box, you know, it goes completely crazy um, in terms of trying to re- retain information and, and trying to deal with, like to pick up what he's dealing with. 
I would then go to the teacher. I'd go and say, this is where we're going with this. This is why he's doing this. He's not sleeping in class. This is why he needs to do this. And all I would get is, don't make excuses for him. But I wasn't. I was advocating. I was educating. And another thing of a word of advice I have is to advocate. And as Joe said, you know, that's something that um, she's only now seeing the value in. And fortunately, I had more of a platform as a teacher and a teacher in a school where, where many children were neurodiverse and then having my own experience. But I think speak, talk, be heard, just the more people understand without even realizing you're making it easier for our, our kids because people have a better understanding. Mm-hmm. And so that's definitely a big thing. And then also um, the early intervention, I was told when James was about four that I need to really prepare well for the future because there's no guarantee that he will be independent Um, He could very well need support as an adult. He might need to be in a facility where, you know, not not an extreme facility, but just for an adult who would need support. And he's the furthest thing from that. Mm -hmm. And that's because I was like a chihuahua. I did not give up. I, Mm -hmm. I spent what I needed to spend. I went down every rabbit hole. I researched. I got every intervention under the sun. And got as much emotional support for him and myself as possible. I lent on the support that I could get. But again, as as Joe had said, it is very difficult when your child is among, not his peers per se, more like I've got friends, they've got kids, they're similar ages. So you just assume, oh, the kids can play together. No, never worked like that just because it didn't work. It didn't fit because James couldn't gel And it is difficult when you see other kids thriving in the same environment, trying to explain why your child isn't and seeing that it can be very, very easy for certain kids and it's so not easy for others. So again, advocacy, um, education, and don't give up. Just keep going. Don't give up and reach out. Reach out for people who've been there. That's the best thing I ever did. I'd reach out to people who had been there, and now in turn I'm reaching back to others who are at the beginning of their journey. And I've made that a huge part of what I do is to just guide people through this because the only way out is through. and You're never mm-hmm. fully out of it, but it, it becomes easier. It does. As you grow with it, as you learn it does become easier and you learn to realize that to a large extent it's a huge gift and I know that can sound weird especially to somebody who has no knowledge of of the spectrum but in many ways it is a huge gift and I would never want to take that away from my son I'd want to take away the challenges that came with it and the discomfort and the difficulties but his brain is incredible and I embrace it and I love him for that I think one of the the gifts looking back in hindsight is that for you to successfully go through this, you learn a lot about yourself too, very quickly. I don't think somebody who is insecure, doesn't have an EQ, is not comfortable with themselves, is going to get through this and guide a child through this process. One of the things that I, you know, Joe said, no expectations, but at the same time, both of you have been very specific about, as you said, you're like a chihuahua going at it. 
So there's no expectations of what your child is going to be except the expectation that we are going to get through this and we are going to be equipped to be in the world as a human being for you to be what you would like to Absolutely. be. Yeah. And I think you said that's one of the, it's, it's not just about kids with autism or on the spectrum or who are neurodiverse. I think it's a good expectation generally. We expect you to be a decent human being, be able to relate to other human beings, understand your influence on the space around you. But as to what you are going to achieve, that's entirely up to you to do that. And I think I just wanted to note that because I think it's a good life lesson generally for people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for us, like like I said, you know, the, the words were given were lower your expectations. And I think for me, that just made, okay, raise my expectations as a mother, as in I'm going to equip myself. I'm going to help you through this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it, it goes a long way even to, like you're saying, how how to how do I best, what's my advice? And, and I think, you know, first and foremost is breathe. Uh, we are so, so easy to criticize ourselves on this journey. And really, you are going to do the job. You are doing the best you can. So I think first of all, first and foremost is stop criticizing ourselves as parents. We are completely novices at this. There was no guide. There was no manual just to be a mom or a parent in general, let alone a parent on, you know, with a child who's neurodiverse. So there is no recipe. Uh, Every child is going to be different. Every journey is going to be different. And so, you know, I might say something and and give some advice here and, and it's completely different for you because you're not in that same space. The one thing I'm going to say is stop stealing your joy. Um, because we were also told that we were also said, you know, uh, most likely he'll get to 16 and not be able to pack a suitcase for himself. You know, you'll probably still have to pack his bags, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably hard to find a wife. Stop, stop right now. Think about what's happening today and how you can get your child through that. It's step, it's a step ladder. It's, it's not about the future. And I think that's one of the things is that it, it just, it, it crushes us as humans, our spirits. I remember my husband, we had listened to a talk by a well-known radio presenter, um, also with a son on the, on the spectrum. And he had mentioned how, you know, he could never take his son to rugby games because it was always too loud. And of course, I mean, you know, South Africans, we are the champions and rugby is <laughs> very important to us. And it's important to my husband. And I remember leaving that talk in my husband's face and he, he looked at me and he's like, I, I'm like, as a father, it's one of the things I want to do with my son. And I'm just, that breaks me right now. It breaks my heart. And, and at the stage, you know, our child is four, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it breaks my heart that I'll never be able to take my son to a rugby game. And at that point, he stole his joy right there. My son is 13. Let me tell you who was screaming at the rugby, you know, and so don't predict it. Uh, you can't and you don't know where your therapy is going to take you. You don't know, you know, the environments that you may or may not find along the way. And it is a journey. Trust me. I have felt that I had my head just above water most of the time. Um, and, and in fact, I can be perfectly honest and say through that journey of bringing my son up, I lost myself. Very much. I know you said it takes a strong person, but you do, you know, as I think as mothers, you're very um, self-sacrificial. And I I very much was that. I wanted to make sure that he had everything he could to be able to, um, you know, learn and and thrive. Um, I forgot that as a parent, we need to thrive too. Mm -hmm. So I didn't practice self-care. I didn't practice any of those things. And I found myself in a position where I didn't know who I was anymore. Um, Thankfully, 
that made a full circle and, and in COVID, um, you, you know, again, that broke the cycle for me. And I also realized that I now have a very capable young man that, you know, this future that we thought was coming and, and listen, he's only 13. I know I have teenage years to get through too. Um, wasn't necessarily the future that was, that was, that, that has, um, eventually, uh, you know, played out. Um, so that'd be my recommendation. And, and yes, you know, reach out to people, start talking, but mostly just cut yourself some slack at the end sure. of the day. You know, there's no, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. No. And to add to that, also what you're saying, another word of advice I would give is grow a thick skin mm. because, when you are out there, and I'm not talking about in the schools, I'm just talking about going to the shops or a birthday party, you're going to have a lot of people criticize your parenting <laughs> because when your child's thrown themselves over the, the table of sweets, like thrown himself in a meltdown and having a fit, there's all the whispers about how can this mother let her child get away with this behavior. I'm, my son is a character my nine-month pregnant friend and I had to sit on him on the top of Table Mountain because he decided he was going to throw himself off. It was quite a sight, but everybody's like, what a brat, what's wrong with this child? And I've learned rather than worrying about what everybody else is thinking, it doesn't matter, I would get to a point where the little things like the Saturday shop, I mean, I found him inside the freezer at Woolworths licking ice off the glass and he got his tongue stuck. You know, he would do... And, and I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't three or four. Let me just tell you that. We're talking like 11. And again, everybody's got so much to say. And eventually I actually got a sense of humor. You know, he'd be lying on the floor having a meltdown and people, and I go, would anybody like popcorn, 3D glasses? Um, or I'd actually carry a, like a little sort of pseudo business card that I'd made for myself that just said, you have no idea what we're dealing with please leave me to handle my son in the way I know best. And the thing is, very often people were extremely embarrassed when they realized it was something greater. And some have even come to me and said, I will never judge a mother again because you do not know what they are dealing with. And it's true. So for those who do not have to deal with this kind of thing, understand you don't know what everybody's journey is. And to those who are, have the thick skin and just know, you know what your journey is. You know what you're dealing with. These people might have good intentions trying to give you advice. They might be very critical and judgmental. Try and just let it be water off a duck's back. Listen to the people who build you up, the people who support you. Um, get the advice you need and the advice you want, but not the unsolicited, unsolicited, unsolicited advice. advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that teamwork seems to be one of the, the key elements to making this work open and honest communication. I haven't dealt firsthand raising a child on the spectrum, and maybe I should be using the word in the spectrum based on what I'm talking about, my globe. On the spectrum sounds like something you can climb off if you want to. Joe, what was your most difficult day? One event that stands out as Kani Mierni. Oh my gosh. Um, Let me think. Um, Okay, so I think I think it is you know the small things that you take for granted, um, you, you know just you know parenting that it should just be easy, like it it shouldn't be so it shouldn't be so hard, and um, you know for us it's dealing with uh, institutions that don't know how to deal with children um, or even adults for that matter who are neurodiverse, and I'm talking about 
hospitals and airports. And, and that's where it becomes really, really stressful because both of those environments are so stressful to begin with. You know, we were traveling to the U.S., and um, and you know you're going through all that security and I mean as it is you feel like a convict and you haven't even done anything wrong as you go through security and now you have a child who can't cope with all these things they don't want people touching them they don't understand people taking their things um, you know we realized JC needed transition objects to change from from different places and you know they they would take those things away um or you know when you're getting on airplanes and you know needing to be still or needing to do those and for JC funny enough he found the airplane quite cathartic but it was all the processes of getting there now anybody who's traveled internationally it's a stress to anxiety to begin with and and now when you you've got this child and you're just thinking like oh my gosh are they going to kick us off are they going to do all of this some of it's more than what you are thinking it's going to be but a hospital in particular and you know it was in a pediatric ward and he needed to do an overnight study and um and they're pushing us into this ward and it was you know we were meant to be in a private room for good reason and they put us in a ward and there's you know children screaming and it was so anxiety provoking as a mother any mother sitting in that room and I could just see it mounting on him the fear the anxiety and we had to put him under anesthesia a little bit later so in your mind I just knew that everything needed to go quietly and and calmly and we needed to get to this private room because I needed to build up to getting him into theater and um and it wasn't working like that and and as much as I would, you know, say to the hospital, I was like, surely, surely we fought, we saw this coming. You know, he's on the spectrum. Like we've spoken about this and all everything we planned just wasn't going, wasn't going to where it should have been. And I think that's where as a mother, you get so disappointed because you just think, you know, now you're in an environment where they should know better and they don't. And, and now, you know, how do we expect schools to know better when environments who are supposed to deal with neurodiverse children in treating them haven't even got that, right, yeah. got that right. And I think for me, that was, it was so, it was just so stressful. I, I think that was when I broke down. It wasn't even stressful for JC as much as what I thought. But for me, that just the level of disappointment, um, in, in everything, in, in our, in our medical facilities, in, in everything was, was so, um, insurmountable for me in that, mm. in that moment. Yeah. And for you, Nicola, what was your worst moment? I was giving it some thought and I'm, I've kind of taken it more from the, I don't know, kind of like that emotional perspective as a mom and also just because of my heart literally breaking for my child. Um, so say when he was in grade nought, it was a mainstream government school. And I, I overheard a conversation. It was moms that were going to hand out birthday invitations. And it was somewhere, something along the lines of obviously not knowing that I'm within earshot but we must just make sure that James doesn't get you know they must hand them out James mustn't see that invitations were going out because the whole class was being invited but not James because he'd ruin everything or and I've had a few situations um like that including in family events um events that are supposed to be joyful and people um laying it on at James's feet that he at the time for example a six-year-old had the power to ruin a special occasion where he didn't you know if it was just managed and handled properly and I was given the space to deal with it it would actually be fine and then also as a mom it's happened a few times 
but it's every time I get called in and sit down at that principal's table and be told, I'm sorry, but we are not the environment for your child. You need to make another plan. Because every time that happened, the carpet was ripped out from under my feet. I had to start all over again. Mm. Um, I was running out of um, options because there there aren't many. Um, And that is also why I feel, I'd say to to Jo, that the first time I met her, that if I'd known that Education Incorporated was there when you started 10 years ago, when my child was nine, my life would be very different right now. Because unfortunately, I didn't have that sort of epiphany that changed our lives to that extent. And I'm still just trying to get this boy to motivate himself, to push through the grind, to get through where he's demotivated. He's got no interest. Um, He hates school because it's that formalized learning where he's a, a true learner. He's not one for, you know, there's a difference between academics and learning in a, in a, you know, to a large degree. And that's been the hard part. It's that rejection, but the hurt is on his behalf. Like mm. I'm, mm. I'm not taking the rejection on myself. Obviously mm. it not cool. <laughs> it it feels pretty bad, but just thinking, I know my son, I know that I've got this beautiful, bright, kind, um, very special little boy and people won't see it. Mm. People just see the autism. They don't see James. And that was, I would say my hardest moments are around that. Mm. And, um, you know, little things happen. Like the other day he mentioned to me that after he'd been shooting, there was an offer to go and do something bigger and better and private where he could enjoy it on a level with you where he could really interact. And I know that's all he wanted, but I'm so proud of my son because his response was, I'd love to, but I promised my cousin I'd take her for lunch. And what 19 year old turns down an opportunity like that to take his 13 year old cousin for lunch, but he made her a promise and he wasn't going to let her down because there are there is no gray area and with him if i say i'm going to do something i need to do it yeah but he's living it too he's learned that he needs to do the same thing so that's what i wish people would focus on and see in my boy and yeah. not just the problems and the difficulties and the challenges well that brings me to my next question which is you know what are the what is the light bulb moment for you you know i've met both of you boys and i've dealt with them more so jesse um, closer over time, but just because of time and more recently James, and I've managed to connect with him as well. And they are both fully functioning human beings. They're going to do very well for themselves and they're going to change the world in their own significant way. I can tell you that right now because they have the brains to do it. And they've had two very supportive moms and families who, whose only expectation is for them to be decent human beings. And they are decent human beings. They are decent in the way they interact with each other, with their peers, with people around them. Um, and sometimes that's a pitfall because then when they act atypically, then it's suddenly a surprise and people go, well, what's wrong with you? But I'm very, very proud of, of them as you should be because they are really, really good human beings. So what is the moment that you are most proud of, the aha light bulb moment? 
So I think for me, it happened when JC was quite young. And I think it was, it dispelled the myth as well. You know, um, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, people on the autism spectrum or um, they have no empathy. You know, they show no empathy. And that is, that is something that we hear all the no, time. No, that's not right. It's a it's stigma and it is a lie. Let me tell you something. Um, I can tell you my son is probably one of the most empathetic people um, to I've ever met. Um, and so I am blessed to have him in my home. Um, and, and they just sometimes have difficulty articulating it. That's yeah. the difference. The expression of Maglad said and afraid appropriately. Appropriately. Yeah. Exactly. So I came into his room one night and, um, you know, we'd say good night to them and we'd gone downstairs, watched some TV and I came back upstairs. And so it's late and he should be asleep. And I see this little boy and he's just lying there. And his, ear, you know, his eyes look uh, teary, and and I'm like, Jess, what's what's wrong? He says, No, mom, um, you know, I'm thinking about Four Ways Mall, and so this will give perspective as well as to when this happened, because Four Ways Mall has been developed for quite a while. And he said, you know, with all the developments going on at Four Ways Mall at the moment, um, and and the building and and the demolition, I don't think people really want to go shop there anymore. So I'm like, okay, what is this? Like, where's this conversation going? I'm like, thinking, why are we thinking about shopping at the night? And he says, well, no, mom. Listen, if people don't shop there anymore, then the shops aren't going to do enough business. And if the shops aren't doing enough business, they're not going to have enough money to pay their staff. And if their staff can't, you know, don't get paid and or, or lose their jobs, how are they going to go home and feed their children? And that's when I sat back and I thought, my child, you are going to change the world. Because I don't know how many children who are driving past Fourways Mall and looking at a construction site are thinking about the worker, the, the teller, the store, you know what I'm saying? The staff, not even the stores, just the staff. And how are they going home to feed their children? Um, and for me, that was really just the moment where I sat back and I, I, I just thought, you know, if we could all just be a little bit more like you, the world would be a very different Much place. Much happier place, yeah. Nicola, your, your moment. Um, also agreeing completely, you know, people say there's no empathy and that is completely not true. Because they are very black and white, I also see it as kind of this, this circle of empathy that go, goes outwards and you've got the immediate empathy for a situation right here and right now. And I find that the more... In, the more complicated it gets, um, the more intense the empathy is. So he might, I mean, it's a bad example, but he might see me stub my toe and not really care. Or it might come across that he doesn't really care because he actually didn't notice or he was so distracted it didn't cross his mind. But the big things, the deep things are where I see it. And one, my light bulb moment, it took a little while actually, so it wasn't a moment, it was a few moments but James and I it's been him and me against the world his whole life he's my only child um, his father worked night shifts weekends didn't have the same relationship um, that I had with James and he tried the best he could um, but also you know it's it was James and me and we were incredibly close to and Close in a way, even now, like, I have to explain to people, you know, if my 19-year-old wants me to come and hug him goodnight, 
I don't care. I'm going to do it. So nobody's going to tell me, but he's 19. You shouldn't be doing that. You know how many people have 19-year-old boys that wish that they would come and hug them goodnight? So those are the little things that I still have because of our closeness. But two and a half years ago, I met James's stepfather. And he's been very good for James. They have a very, very positive relationship. But what stood out for me was James's acceptance of it. He'd had his mother to himself for 17 years out at the drop of the hat. So I'd spend half the night asleep on the edge of his bed because I was just trying to calm him and I fell asleep. Um, you know, he had all my time, he had all my attention. And obviously when a third person came into that dynamic, we absorbed to become a family of three, which shifts. And while we work very hard at being a family and James is very much integrated into it, I would have still expected him to do what even a normal neurotypical teenager would do. Things like, this guy's not my father or, you know, those kinds of things to kind of reject him out of a jealousy because he's kind of taken some of his mom's attention, but he embraced it so beautifully. But I only picked it up a couple of months ago to the extent where he'd overheard us having a disagreement and all he could say was, I need you guys to be okay because I know that this makes you happy and this is what you need and, and this is this is a good life for you. So I need you guys to – and I mean, it wasn't even a big disagreement, but in his head he's thinking, oh, my word. Mm. But he was more worried about me and the fact that – knowing that a kid at that age understands, he's like – my mom's gone through a lot for me and I'm so grateful that somebody is taking care of her now. And that to me for any child, any teenager is profound. It's good EQ. Very good EQ. And again, yeah. this is somebody on the spectrum where they say there's no EQ. Yeah. Oh, there is. Yeah. Um, another example was um, when he was doing, I think the book was The Fault in Our Stars and he was doing this um in grade nine and the teacher posed the question I think one I haven't read the book but one of the characters dies of cancer apparently and the question was you know how does that make you feel how do you feel about this character and James's response was I don't feel anything for the character and the teacher was very upset and saying you know that's very callous and cold and doesn't give him a chance to explain himself but then he gets in the car and he starts talking and he said mom I've lost a lot of people that I love. I've lost both my grandpas. Um, I've lost my great aunt, my godmother. Um, I know what it means to lose somebody you love. Why would I cry over a fictional character that doesn't exist? Mm. And again, I think that's fair enough. You know, if it was a true story or a biography or even fine. But he said, I can feel pain. I can feel grief. It's just doesn't make sense to me to grieve for someone that's non-existent. Yeah. And that was also that he could pin down his emotions like that hmm. at that age was quite something. I've been in a privileged position over the last 10 years to encounter lots of kids in the spectrum in different ways. And I think that a lot of our generation are in or on the spectrum in some way. You know, Vivian Schultz says we're all human beings under construction. It used to be slapped out of us or 
shamed out of us or guilted out of us in some way or another. And I think that as the head of Edgink and Jackson and myself as the founders, one of the things that has been very important to us is that we recognize and we say to parents when we start the journey with them is that Edgink is a normal school. We are, you know, a, a high achieving school, a high, highly academic school. But because we are committed to having relationships with human beings, we can see who they are as human beings and are prepared to listen to them. But guys, it's going to get messy because what works for one is not going to work for another. And as long as we have open and honest conversation, and especially with the kids, and teach them to have that appropriate voice, that messy becomes a lot more manageable. And I feel that one of the jobs that we have as primary caretakers, as parents and as educators, is to teach them the appropriate expression of mad, sad, glad and afraid because they are feeling them. And when they're not addressing it appropriately, it comes out in self-harm or overwhelm attacks, etc. You know, temper, temper, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's that sense of overwhelm. I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know what I'm doing type of thing. Um, and that these kids, these young people are going to do amazing things in this world. They're good examples of many of them that already are. But they need to learn to socialize and what becomes through osmosis to a lot of us is something that has to be laid out. And when it's laid out and they follow the, you know, the process for them, they become comfortable with themselves and they become comfortable in the environment that they're working in. The work is not over. And I'm sorry that even though James is 19, as you said, the work is not over because you're giving back to people. And I think the more we talk about it and share the journeys, there are going to be commonalities amongst those journeys and commonalities amongst the parents and their journeys and thoughts, because it's not just a journey for your kids. It's a journey for you as a human being. And I think that's part of the blessing too. You get the privilege of really having to know who you are as a human being to be able to raise and guide somebody as gifted and as exceptional as these kids are. Absolutely. I love the word privilege because that's really what it has been for me on my journey as a mother, you know. Um, like I said, you know, you have this expectation, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids and it's, you know, it's all this little box and it's a little picture and you know exactly how it's going to go. Um, and then life hits. But in that, like the messy, the messy is the beautiful parts. The messy is where you grow. The messy is where you learn. Um, change is inevitable. It's, it's, it's been a privilege. And, you know, I, I was recently asked in an interview and they said, you know, who is the person that you look up to in life? And I had to turn around and I said, well, quite literally, I look down because I'm taller than him. But most definitely my son, my son would be the person that I look up to in life because yeah. he has taught me the most. If resilience as well, you know, you said earlier just how much a little person can go through and still come out on the other end and, and almost unfazed. Um, you know, we say we're dealing with it, but you know, they've had this whole world, this, the scary place that they go through every day. And I just think to myself, you know, when you start to put yourself in the shoes of a, of a, of a child or even a neurodiverse adult, um, just a little bit more patience and tolerance is, is what's needed. And, and it's definitely changed my perspective on the world in general. You stop judging things as much as yep. you used to. Exactly. What is refreshing and surprising to me is the level of candor and honesty that we have with conversations with young people like this, especially your kids. The world could do with a lot more honesty and candor. And it's almost from a place of 
this is not about me. I don't take things personally. I've been through a lot, so I can be honest about it. And it's very, very refreshing to be able to actually have conversations like that, I have to say. It can lead to very awkward situations, I can promise you that. <laughs> okay. I was going to say the same thing. I think one of the things also, like you say, with um, you know autism, it's black and white. There's no gray area. No gray area. So, so we have a, a complete honesty policy in our home. You know, we have told JC the truth from, from day one as far as, you know, if he's had questions. Obviously, you know, we've, we've made it age appropriate, but there's never been a lie and because they can see right yeah. through it. And so it really does lead to interesting conversations around the dinner table. And uh, in public too. Yes, yes. Well, we have a little joke. Um, you know the song, we don't talk about broom, no, no, no. So <laughs> that, that's my clue with Jess. I'm like, we don't talk about broom, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, James just gets a look and he knows. It's like, <laughs> yeah, my, sister, my sister's policy was, I will program him right from the beginning because unwiring through not being honest is going to take a lot longer and there's yeah. a lot more trauma. So yeah. the honesty up front, the programming up front, the expectation set up front makes our lives a lot yeah. easier you know, moving down the... And it's also giving them the respect they deserve by not packaging things in pretty boxes because they don't want that. You know, even the little things like the Father Christmas debate and the Easter Bunny yeah. and... You know, he's far too logical. He would really start looking at star maps and trying to calculate the rate that the world turns. And like, I'm not going to perpetuate a myth when he's seen right through it all. Lies to children don't work. Exactly. No, no. But I have to just say, I agree with Joe 100%. It's a privilege. Yeah. And also, if I had to say, and I do look up to my son. He's <laughs> about 6'4 now. But it is, he's my hero. And I do look up to him more than anyone and anything because I would not be where I am today if I hadn't had the privilege of being his mom and walking the road with him. This is going to be a bit of a time capsule because we're going to look back in 10 years at this conversation. Right. See where they are. Have them in on the conversation if we're still all around talking about this. Because imagine what that would look like. And it's going to be an amazing thing to see. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping that this is the beginning of other conversations because I think they, they're vital to be had. And there's so much to say. So, there's so much to say and so much to share. Guys, thank you very much for coming in today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, I think Gucci. this was put together at short notice and we all have busy schedules. So I really appreciate it. And thank you very much for your honesty and candor. And thank you for the platform to advocate. As I said to me, that's what's very important is advocating for my child and advocating for children like him yeah guys hats off to you as moms hats off to you as families you're doing a great job thank you and um let's keep the conversation going thanks and i just want to say hats off to all the parents out there as well and to the moms with who have you know recent diagnosis and, and young children just wait you've got a journey ahead of you it's going to be hard it's going to be joyous but uh, look where we are 13 and 19 and and who are our heroes so just know you've got a little hero there yeah, 100%. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.